This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody is having a great Wednesday morning. And this is the program you can call in to ask any kind of healthcare question that you might have about yourself or somebody in your family, or maybe it's just a curiosity that you have about something that's related to uh, to medicine or healthcare. If you're not able to call right now, then you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Now, a lot of people have different schedules, too. is a great way that you can listen to all of our programs produced here at MPB. Uh, by going to our website and uh, searching for those individually to uh, see our archive. It usually takes us about 24 hours to put those up. Just go to mpbonline.org, or you can download those on any of your favorite podcasting apps by just searching for it. This program is Southern Remedy, of course, and uh, you can uh, listen to it at your leisure. And uh, Or maybe you know finish up a program that you didn't quite uh, get to a certain part of it live. Well, I hope everybody had a great holiday season. Uh, I know we uh, celebrated Christmas and uh, looking forward to New Year's and uh, just some things to sort of contemplate. I co- sort of contemplate those things myself and thinking about what um, what accomplishments, what things have we all experienced in the last year. I know it's been a tough year for a lot of people, certainly a tough uh, last couple of weeks here with a cold snap that's uh, been a little bit more uh, devastating than uh, than it than it uh, than we've experienced in a while, as far as the degree of cold, and I know that affects a lot of people. Thankfully, here in the South, not as much as up north. Boy, I tell you what, Buffalo, New York, it looked like a a somebody had just poured water and then froze it on top of everything. It was incredible the amount of damage and uh, and snow and ice that they had there. But uh, regardless of that, uh, certainly here in the South, um, we fare a little bit better, but always want to uh, remember, hey, that could happen anytime. If uh, you've got, uh, as we were, I was talking earlier with our producer, Kevin Farrell, it's a good time once it warms up to assess any kind of damage that you have and uh, to prepare for the next time. That's a great uh, time to do that, whether it's a frozen potential frozen pipe situation or whether it's uh, something else that's affecting you. And uh, certainly that does affect our health um, and our access to different things. Well, I'd encourage you to, uh, during the program, a lot of people wait and say, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be the first person. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, in a big group and you're touring something and you've got a question, but you don't want to be that first question uh, person to raise their hand or in your, you were in class and like, ah, I got this burning question, but I don't want to be the first one to do that. I'm giving you permission this morning. You can go ahead and call right now with those questions. And don't feel like that you're the only person that has that question because 
quite frequently we get comments that you know that they somebody was just waiting for somebody to to ask the question that they have. And speaking of the new year, I was thinking about you know different ways that how can you improve your health? Um, and there's a couple of things. You know, we, uh, you know, seeing uh, coming out of the pandemic, one of the things that we saw is uh, there was a disruption, certainly, to care uh, of people for all kinds of different things, not necessarily COVID care, but other care. And there were a lot of hurdles in uh, accessing care for a lot of people, whether that was transportation hurdles or insurance hurdles. Or maybe it was changes to the clinic or the doctor that you uh, you were seeing. There's certainly been a lot of turnover with personnel in a lot of places. Whatever those reasons, now is a good time to reaccess that. One of the best ways to ensure that you are healthy is to see somebody who's an expert on that, that can give you a, a look over and uh, do a proper uh, history and a physical exam to sort of see what's your current state of health. I know a lot of people are like, well, I feel great. I'm able to do things. You know, as long as your car is running and uh, it's going down the road, uh, you know, you wouldn't just keep on driving it and never take it in to get it checked out or the oil change. You know, that's oftentimes if you wait, uh, you know, an inspection of different things from time to time can be much better and can anticipate any kind of problems that you might have. Same kind of thing with uh, with your health. So I would encourage you, that's the, probably the first thing I would do, is to go to somebody who really knows what they're doing and can give you a, a look over and say, hey, these are the things that really might affect your health, not only in the next year, but maybe even the next 10 or 15 years. Maybe it's something that you hadn't thought about in your family history. Maybe there are a couple of things that people in your family have gotten when they were about 10, 15 years older than you that you might can prevent that by doing certain things. So it's always a good time to uh, to check in, to make that appointment with your physician or healthcare provider so that you can uh, be seen and to uh, anticipate any kind of problems that might come up. Let's go to Joey. Good morning, Joey. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. How you doing? Good. My question is, I had uh, got the flu about the first week in November. Mm-hmm. And almost killed me. Oh, goodness. But I got over it, according to claim. But I've got a secondary sinus infection, and the sinuses are just, they won't heal. I'm on prednisone and decadron and some other kind of antibiotics, and they ain't doing any good. Is there anything else you can talk about that I might could do? Yeah, there's a couple of things, and you may be doing these too, but I'll go over them because I think it's important for for our uh, other listeners to hear it, and then hopefully one or two of these things might be the next step that you could take. So sinus infections, you know, we have sinuses that are these cavities within our skull. We don't really know the full reason why we yes, have sir? them. Go. I'm sorry? I said yes. Okay. Uh, so they, um, you know, they are are sort of empty, but they also produce mucus. Like it's it's really the same type of tissue in there, very similar to what's in our nose and in the back of our throat and in our respiratory system. So they produce a thin layer of mucus that protects the inside surface of things. And then it sort of pushes stuff out into the nose and it either gets sort of gross, swallowed down the back of our throat 
or we blow our nose and it comes out that way. And we have different sinuses in different places. Like we have the maxillary sinuses, we have the frontal sinuses, we have the ethmoids and the sphenoids. So they're all a little bit different in where they are and where they drain. If you clog up the pipes, so to speak, in those drainage systems, that's when you can run into problems. And that typically happens by a couple of things that happen first. One of them is sort of what you had. So if you have any type of viral illness, including the flu, that usually causes the, all that tissue, those mucous membranes in our nose and right around where those sinuses drain out to become inflamed. They get sort of boggy. They increase in size, and they can clog up the pipes. You can also get that. Well, it's that, viral because it's, it's, it's clear and very viscous. Yep, yep, yep. That's, that sounds like that. And sometimes that's all that's going on, and that's what causes it. That's why we don't overtreat with antibiotics a lot of times like we used to um, right off the bat. Usually, you know, a couple of weeks of having those symptoms, that's when you want to treat it with antibiotics because you can get bacterial overgrowth. But it's also the reason why antibiotics don't work sometimes because the thing that really started the process was a virus. Now, you can also get it from if you have allergy problems. Anything really that's going to inflame or irritate those sinuses um, uh, the, where they drain those, those mucous membranes, that's going to sort of set you up to get that. Now, the first step is actually not antibiotics. It's in trying to get that inflammation down, which is probably why they put you on steroids. Usually that's going to be anywhere from a 5- to 10-day course of steroids. They can have side effects. There's not really any advantage of treating the inflammation in your nose from getting uh, an oral steroid versus a steroid that they inject in you. It's pretty much the same effect. I know a lot of people say, hey, I can't, can I get the shot? It works faster. For this particular uh, you know, problem with inflammation, it's not going to work any faster. And a lot of times it may carry some side effects, like if you have diabetes or hypertension or other problems, it can sometimes cause some problems. But usually five to ten days after that, you're not really going to get much of an improvement in symptoms based on that alone. A couple of other things that, that I like to do, if even if I'm not giving steroids at the same time, is to wash off all that mucus stuff in your nose where it drains in from those sinuses. So a sinus wash using something like a nasal applicator bottle that, uh, you know, you can buy these at, at drugstores or a neti pot. Um, that's not like the pot you smoke. That's a different kind of thing. But uh, this is something that you, uh, you know, have some some saline solution, some salt solution that you mix up. Now it's it, yeah, and that I think you know honestly, that's the thing that, that sort of washes all that gunk off of there, and then you can also use a spray steroid, something like Flonase or Fluticasone is the generic one uh, name for that, and that gets the steroid right where you want it, so you don't have all those other side effects of staying up, you know, till you know all kinds of hours of the night, or the weight gain, or the salt retention that you can have, or even the problems that you can have in your stomach. Some people, once they get a steroid, they're like, man, my reflux and gastritis acts up. So that may be something to do, you know, to spray it with that that nasal spray, um, just that saline solution first, and then one or two sprays in your nostril on each side of the, of the uh, Flonase, of the nasal steroid. 
And sometimes that'll clear it up, but it's not a quick fix. We're talking about days to a week of doing that. Well, I've had this over two months. Yeah, if you've had it that long, honestly, I would go to either, are you being treated by an ear, nose, and throat doctor or just a general doctor or? No, sir, just a clinic. Yeah, I'd probably ask to go, if it's been more than a month or six weeks-ish, then that's that's an indication you either need to be seen by an allergist or an ear, nose, and throat doctor because that's going to be sort of a step up to the expertise. They can sometimes do very limited surgery. We used to they used to go in and just like obliterate those, you know, just sort of rotor rooter uh, the entrance to those sinuses so they could drain out better. A lot of complications with those early that surgeries. Sound very, uh, huh, very no. Tough. No, it does. It does. Now they've gotten a lot better, though. So don't be scared of that if they say, hey, I really think surgery may be the best bet. But they're probably going to want to see a, a decrease in inflammation. Another thing that they can do is they can look directly at those sinuses. They got some really cool stuff in the office that they can do to say to look at where those sinuses are draining and diagnose the problem very accurately. The way that, you know, that I look at sinuses it's more of like what's draining out by the sinuses. I can't really see very well uh, with the stuff that we have in the office up in the nose. But, um, you know, I try to look as, as good as I can. And, and if I see some stuff draining, I try to treat that. But if you're two months into it and you've had a round of antibiotics and you had a round of steroids or multiple rounds, rounds. yeah, you need to, you probably need to see the ear, nose, and throat doctor. All right. Well, I will make an appointment. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thank you. Yes, sir, and thank you for calling. I'm going to try Flonase first. Yeah, do that. Do that, because that, sometimes that'll help, and do that washout first before you do it. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right, Happy Joey. You To you, too. You take care. You can always email us. We do share some of those emails. If you give us permission with our larger audience, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Jennifer from Columbia. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. What's your question this morning? I have a question about a dermoid cyst. Okay. Okay, I have a bit of background. Um, I went to the hospital in November with what appeared to be a stroke at first. I presented with uh, inability to speak, some numbness on my left side, very bad headache. Um, fortunately, it was not a stroke, but it was diagnosed as an atypical migraine. Mm-hmm. While the team of doctors... Still thinking that I was having a stroke. We're giving me uh, CT scans and MRIs. Um, as I'm kind of coming back to, you know, my awareness again, I hear someone say, "What about that mass near her brainstem?" Mm. Which is, of course, words you never want to hear from a doctor. Right. Um, but it was diagnosed as not having anything to do with my migraine problems, but it was a dermoid cyst near my brainstem on the left side. Um, my question is. What exactly is this? And I have a follow-up appointment with a neurosurgeon in a few weeks, but what can I expect to, uh, what should I know before I go in, and what can I maybe expect to hear about this? Sure, yeah. Yeah, that can be scary. You know, uh, my, my mother had a uh, recent uh, uh, MRI, and, uh, you know, she sort of read it off on on the phone. And there's a lot of stuff in the report when you see stuff like that or overhear stuff that's not directly related to things that can be very, it's very scary. Um, and, um, you, you know, it needs some interpretation by experts. And the neurosurgeons are the experts here, but I, I'm, I'm familiar with dermoid cyst. 
uh, I can give you a little bit of information about that in general and sort of what to expect uh, going into that appointment. So a dermoid cyst is a benign tumor. So it's not like a cancerous tumor that, that becomes invasive. It tends to be slowly growing. Now, it can push on other structures, and depending on the size, sometimes it can affect them. But it's not like, say, a melanoma or, you know, lung cancer or something like that. Um, it is in the same type of family of um, of benign tumors uh, like a teratoma. Uh, usually you're born with this at birth, but it's just so slowly growing that it doesn't cause any problems. And it can be pretty much anywhere in the body, but a lot of times it's on the skin itself, particularly around the eye. Um, so I, I think depending on the size and location, and certainly the brainstem has a lot of important structures right there, you know, any kind of surgery around that area carries some risk. Um, so my suspicion is if it's not causing any problems that they can see, they may want to uh, or recommend just watching this with serial CT scans or MRIs every six months or so just to see, you know, the progression of it. Um, and you can live your whole life with one of these and it not cause any problems. Again, most of the time, something like this is uh, not from the direct symptoms caused by something like this, but it was it was discovered due to a scan that's looking for something else like like the like your case. That's exactly usually how that would that would present. Um so that's that's without actually seeing how big it is and sort of right it specifically where it is close to the brainstem. Uh, that's that's about the best information I can give you. But again, most of the time these are very slow growing structures. They don't tend to invade into the surrounding space. They sort of push it aside, and um, you know, depending on the size and location, that's probably what they're going to tell you. Okay, and kind of a follow up on that. I have significant hearing damage, uh, hearing difference between my left side, where this is located, and my right side. Mm-hmm. Could that be a possibility? Because I've never been able to get an actual diagnosis of why my hearing is so much different yeah. from one side to the other. Sure, and there are a couple of, there, there's one very, uh, a little bit more common than a dermoid cyst um, called an acoustic neuroma that actually is associated with hearing loss, particularly if it's unilateral, if it's on one side more than, than both sides. Um, so that, that you know, certainly could be the case here as well. And those are treated similarly. They can do surgery on those, very successful surgery in removing that. But a lot of times, if it's slow growing, they'll just have, you know, a, a, an MRI every three to six months just to see what the progression is. And if it's slowly growing and it's not causing any other problems, um, and, you know, particularly if the surgery is a little bit riskier, they will delay doing that. All right. Thank you so much. Yes. That, thank you for calling and sharing that with us. I would let me interject this before we go to our next caller. Like, you know, I am so guilty of doing this so many times. The information that we sometimes get to patients and certainly the access to information now is more than ever, particularly through electronic health records, is, you know, it can be incredibly scary to either overhear discussions about medical problems or or, uh, surreptitious findings on exam or in labs. And we have to be careful, and sometimes we're not careful enough so that that information is not 
misconstrued by the patient as something that's much more serious. So um, I think that's one thing we we are guilty of from time to time in doing that because we know, like I know when I hear dermoid cyst, you know, I'm thinking, oh, well, actually, that may not be such a big deal. You may not have to have anything done more than just look at it. Um, but I may not say that out loud, and the patient may, you know, be left to wonder, and sometimes weeks or maybe even months sometimes what's going on. So from a patient standpoint, I know I'm not talking to a whole lot of doctors right now, but from a patient standpoint, um, the challenge is to ask those questions. So always go back and ask those questions. If you don't understand something, that's what you need to ask. I never, like I, my patients, I want them to ask those questions, even if it's a question that is a very simple one, that has a very simple answer. Maybe it is a uh, something that has been um, uh, misinterpreted by them in some way in the way that I presented it or the information was given to them. It's it's always okay to do that. So please do that if you have those same type of questions or concerns. If you don't just feel right, ask your doctor, ask their team and say, hey, and it's okay to call the nurse and say, I really want to talk to the doctor. That's okay too. So I just want to encourage you in doing that. And thank you, Jennifer, for sharing that. And uh, certainly I hope that the outcome is um, is very good for you when you go to follow up with a neurosurgeon. Let's go to Ernest in Byram. Good morning, Ernest. Hey, how you doing? Good. What's your question this morning? Look, my grandson has just turned five, mm-hmm. but he's been having trouble uh, going to the bathroom, and now he's starting to, well, actually he has started last year, you know, starting to boo-boo on himself, and, and he's saying it's hurting, you know, and so we're trying to tell him to go to the bathroom, but I don't know if he can't make it to the bathroom, but sometimes his grandmama will see him, and he'll just be kind of dancing in the floor. And I'll hear him say, boy, go to the bathroom. And so he's, he's, he's having accidents on himself. You know, he's boo-booing mm-hmm. in his underwear and he's boo-booing on himself. And it's, it's just so heartbreaking because we have been fussing at him. But now as I start to do, you know, do some research, I'm finding out this is kind of common in boys around his age and i just want to know what is it that we can do to help him because I, I, I just hate it for him and just earlier this morning he was telling me that granddaddy you know he's just telling me how it feels you know mm-hmm. how it hurts you know he can feel it and and when he did use the bathroom in the bathroom uh, a couple of days ago he he said afterward that his that his behind was sore you know and it was like oh my god he, he's really catching it and I just want to know anything I can do to try and give him some relief. We've taken him to the doctor before, and a couple of years ago, this had to start when he was maybe two or three. Mm-hmm. And so the, the pediatrician said that uh, she thought he was holding it, and maybe he is, but he said it was hurting. And uh, maybe five or six months ago, he told me his stomach was hurting constantly, so we took him to the hospital. They said he was constipated. I don't know if they gave him an enema. Or that other little thing that you push up in my, I don't, I wouldn't, I got there late. Mm-hmm. But he used the bathroom after that, but he, he's really catching it. And I'm open to suggestions. Sure. Yeah, Ernest, this is a, you're right. This is a very common uh, issue in boys and girls this age. And, uh, you know, it sounds to me like this is very consistent with constipation. Um, it may be counterintuitive when you think, well, he's having leakage and it's, it's, it's loose stool. 
but there's a reason for that. So most of the time, this is due to a couple of different things. You know, when kids get the ability to, uh, you know, to have more control over their bowel movements, basically what they're doing, like you and I do, like if we're driving down the road and we're, we have to get somewhere, like if I'm going, if you're going, I live in Byram too, or close to it. So if we're going from Byram to Grenada, we got a long way to go and we feel the urge, but we don't, we can't really stop. What do you do? Well, you just, you know, you do what you have to do. That's exactly right. So you, you hold it. Now, the longer we do that, basically what happens in the large intestine, its main job is to, is to absorb uh, fluid, back in, absorb water back into the body to try, try to conserve that. And the longer that stool sits there, the more it backs up and the more it compacts and the less water content it has. So oh, now, wow. so now you're dealing with constipation. I want, I, I want. I'm sorry. You just made me think of something. Yeah. When he used the bathroom the other night after he had had a, a bad episode, then we were at. Then uh, a little while later, we were giving him something to eat, and he started to throw up. Yeah, probably because he's got so much stool in his intestines that it's sort of it's it's stimulating those nerves, and they're saying, "Hey, we don't need anything else coming down the pipes." Uh, until we get it cleaned out, so that's probably why he did that, and that's that's sometimes that's common too. Um, so so to a kid, to a five year old, they you know they may be busy doing something and they don't want to go, and so they hold it in, and then it gets hard, and then it's painful when it comes out. You know, I'm sure you know as a, most adults have at least once. Uh, if you've had constipation, you know, when, when that bowel movement, when you do have it, um, it can be painful just because it's a, a bigger caliber and it's harder going out. So the next time, though, that five-year-old remembers how painful that bowel movement was, guess what? They're thinking nothing good ever came out of my bottom. I stole that from, from Dr. Paul Parker, who's a retired gastro pediatric gastroenterologist years ago who taught me. And they think, you know what? If it was that painful before, I'm never going to the bathroom. So what do they do? Right. They do the same thing we do on that long car ride. They clamp down, they hold it, and guess what? It gets harder and harder and harder. And sometimes it gets so hard that they get a little plug in there. And the only thing that then can come out is loose stool up the pipeline. So it sort of seeps out around the plug. So that's why you can have, you know, I've had parents come in and say, well, my child can have constipation because they've got diarrhea and they're having loose bowel movements around it. Well, they can. They've just plugged up their bowels enough to the only thing that can come out now is loose stool. The first step is getting all that cleaned out. And um, suppositories and enemas can work. And a five-year-old, though, who's already had a lot of pain, you know, in their in their uh, anus and rectum from that big stool passing through there. I don't like to do a lot of that unless they've got a ton of stool in there. And you need to get it out first. Now, it, you can do a couple of things to prevent this over time, but it's going to take time. It's not something that can change in days or even weeks. Like, this is going to take months because to this five-year-old, he's got to know that every time that he goes to uh, to the bathroom, that it's not going to hurt. 
So you got to get that stool really loose to the point that it is only mildly formed. Like if it's if it's hard at all, it's going to hurt. He's going to clamp right. down, and we're going to have the same process. So the way right. you can do that, there's a, a there's a medication called Miralax that it is totally safe. It's a liquid. It's powder that you mix in with any liquid. You give it to the to the patient. They drink it. You give it once a day. And you can sort of titrate it, you know, start off with, for a five-year-old, maybe a half a cap full. And um, it's very safe. It doesn't get absorbed by the body. But basically, it's going to hold water in that stool, and it's going to make it more loose. If it's too loose and not formed at all, you just back up on the dose a little bit of it. If it's not loose enough, you increase the dose. And you may want to check in. They probably need to check in with their physician before they start this just to make sure they don't need like a glycerin suppository or something like that to clean out. But that daily for a couple of months is going to retrain him to where he's like, I know that I now when I go to the bathroom, it's not going to hurt and I'm not going to have an accident. And the other thing is having is the behavioral part of it, which is dedicated bathroom times. So first thing when you wake up, he goes to the bathroom. He sits there for three minutes, long time. And whether he goes or not, you don't make a big deal out of it. You can have a positive reward system, but if he had, certainly what the, the worst thing you can do, and it's frustrating for parents, I know, because you want to say, hey, why can't you do this? Well, he's five, and his little brain is working a little bit differently than an adult brain. So it takes a while to do that. So you got to have the patience to do that and just say, hey, we're going to have these bathroom breaks. Don't worry if you don't go to the bathroom, but we're going to sit here and then have those throughout the day that uh, where he can sit and knows that he has these times to go. And eventually that should take care of the problem. But it is it's not going to take uh, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time to do that. And everybody's going to have to be on board. Right. OK. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And then you all, I also feel really bad because when all this started, I got, you know, we had never seen it, man. We were fussing at him, and Lord, I just, you know, and you just, you, you just hate it, you know, and, and you can't take it back. But, you know, I was talking with him this morning, and I saw him. He said, he said, Granddaddy, he said it was hurting on. I mean, he brought it right up as he saw me again this morning. Yeah. And so I was just hugging him and telling him. I said, No, baby, it's all right. I said everything's going to be all right. I said we're going to help you. I said I told him that I had seen some things. And it was a lot of other little boys like him, and and we were just going to be able to help him. But I mean, even this morning, before I left the house, you know, he was he was wanting to explain to me, you know, cause, so I know it's on his mind. Right, um, right. So, yeah, it's going it, it's going to take a while, but you you're telling him the right thing right now, and it, and you know what? It, don't worry about what's been said. Because I guarantee you, every family, they're going to get frustrated with that, and uh, it just takes a little bit of time and effort moving forward. Once you know the process of what happens, it can help you as an adult help him, uh, you know, get over that. So you're on the right track, Ernest. I, I appreciate you calling, and I would check in with his pediatrician to say, hey, I think we got a problem with chronic constipation. Is there anything that we can do, and is it okay to take that Miralax um, you know, in the meantime, to sort of to do that. We're going to go to John from Mobile. Good morning, John. Uh, hello, Dr. Stewart. Uh, good to hear from you. And um, I had a question about um, something that's really bothering me, really painful. It's um, during these winter months, I'm getting split skin 
and uh, chafing, I mean, really severe, on the palms and working surf uh, on my palms and working surfaces of my fingers. And uh, it's just not going away no matter what I do. You know, I use lotions and uh, creams and uh, e even um, prescription creams. And um, it doesn't seem to go away. All I need to do is to, uh, try to pick up, say, a, a loaded laundry basket and whatever progress my uh, hands have made in healing is <laughs> undone right away. And right now, for example, I've got my, you know, some of the splits wrapped up in, what is it, Curad waterproof adhesive tape, mm -hmm. which might work, but, um, you know, it looks kind of funny when you have uh, all <laughs> right. the stuff on your hand. Right. So um, I was wondering if you'd recommend uh, a different course of action. Also, also, um, there's a product I know of called New Skin that you may have heard of, mm -hmm. and I wondered if that would be helpful in covering these things so that they're not so extremely sensitive and painful uh, and would last a day or two until I need to reapply. Yeah, great, great questions. And this is a common thing that helps people, um, uh, that affects people during the winter months. So this uh, it most probably is dishydrotic eczema. Um, now, there, you can have a couple other things that can cause this, but it, typically if it's in the winter months, this is a, a common problem that can happen on your hands. And as a type of eczema, really it's sort of a, a autoimmune, uh, hyperimmune system problem uh, where you're, um, your body's ramping up its immune system in a way that's causing the skin problems and causing it to be cracked. The surface of our of the skin on our on our hands, on particularly on the palms and the soles of our feet, it's it's what's called keratinized skin, and it's very thick. And it has to be that way because if you think about it, that interacts with more things, our hands and our feet, than any other part of our body on a repetitive uh, basis. And it needs to be uh, to be very, you know, if you put the same pressure that you put on, on the palms of your hands on your arm, for instance, and had the same shear pressures and compression compressive pressures on it, you'd have problems. You'd have an ulcer or a tear in the skin there. And if there are any kind of disruptions to that, you can get a crack in your fingers, even like a, a, a cut or something like that. That can, can make it really hard to, that interferes with the, some of the processes we have. Now, normally that, you know, you've mentioned some of the things we usually treat with that, like the, the, what we call emollients and that's sort of the lotions or the creams that can keep that, that skin from drying out. And then the steroids and, uh, there's several different steroid potencies that you can use. The problem, particularly on the palms is that that skin is so thick that it's hard for those uh, medications and lotions to penetrate deeper, deep enough to where they have an effect, which is probably why you're talking about a, a, an occlusive, uh, even like a glove. Like some people will put this on at night uh, to try to heal this up and put the steroid on and then put a glove on on top of that, like a waterproof glove, in order to uh, sort of... Yeah. yeah, that may be some of the next step. And that way you're not walking around with it, uh, you know, during the day um, looking looking like you've got, you know, like like the mummy walking out of the pyramid. Uh, but, um, but that may help it penetrate at least during the daytime. Now, gloves can help 
to protect your skin from getting dried out, particularly if that's part of your normal routine at work or whatever you're doing, the drier it gets, and sometimes it can even be thermally related to like to the cold, then that's going to increase the amount of problems that you have. The new skin is a great idea. So if you do have a crack or you do have something that's, uh, you know, that's uh, a blister or sometimes these can come up as almost little pimples too, that's it. When you have a break in the skin, that can help that skin heal a little bit quicker, just having a covering on it so that it's not getting further dried out and you're not putting any shear stresses on it at the edges. So that can help help uh, that heal up a little bit. But one one next step, I would try using some of those steroid creams at night uh, or ointments and uh, and then put it on first and then. Just get you some some plain old nitrile rubber gloves. Uh, you can get those at a hardware store or a pharmacy and uh, put those on at night and see if that doesn't help. Sometimes we'll do that for eczema too, and this sounds crazy. But for kids and adults who have really bad eczema, we'll tell them to take a tepid bath, not a hot bath, get out of the water, put on the, the prescription medication, and then wrap it in cellophane. Because again, it keeps it, it, it forces that to be absorbed into the tissues a little bit more. So it's an occlusive dressing, is what we call, call it. Um, but gloves would work great on the hands. That's probably the, the best way to do it without, you know, again, if you're wrapping your hand up with cellophane, it's probably going to be pretty messy, but the gloves should work well. Um, that's great. Um, I wanted to mention everybody knows what paper cuts are like. Right. They're really painful. That's how these things start out. They yep. start as, uh, as as little slivers or slits, and then they get worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I failed to mention that, yeah, the same thing is happening on the uh, soles of my feet. Yep. Uh, but not not as bad. Yeah. But, let me, uh, I really appreciate the uh, advice you've given so far. Oh, sure, sure. Do you, Let me ask you one more question. Do you sweat a lot, like your hands sweat a lot, during the, not just during the wintertime, but all the time? No, but uh, I, I wanted to mention I've got a cat. You know, yeah. uh, cats groom themselves, and I'm thinking maybe uh, allergy, uh, an allergy to cat saliva. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it is possible. And in any kind of the, we call them the atopic diseases, and that tends to be uh, atopic dermatitis and eczema, and it also goes along with asthma. Sometimes they can have a trigger like that. So that's a good thought. Well, this is a great, complete answer. I'm glad I called you. Oh, thank you for calling, John, and I'm, I'm sure that helps some other people out there, too. We encourage you to call in. We've got a little bit of time left in the hour, or you can email us, and the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Rebecca from Jackson. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Could you give a little context and background, please? My brother-in-law today in Nashville is having a procedure to help address his heart condition of atrial fibrillation, and it's called an ablation. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about that a little bit? And more importantly, for those of us who will be trying to help take care of him, what can we expect in the next few days and weeks, and what can we do to help him get this situation under control? Sure. Thanks. I'll listen to you off, off and on the radio. All right. That sounds great. Yeah, that's a common uh, condition. I'm going to go over it a little bit in detail so everybody will be on the same page of what we're talking about. Uh, atrial fibrillation is a an arrhythmia, so it is a rhythm that is not normal in the heart. 
where the upper two chambers, which usually that's where the electrical impulses which drive our heart rate uh, and and allow the four chambers of the heart to pump efficiently and coordinate between them, uh, there's a problem in that area. And the atria are the top two chambers, so that's why we call it atrial. Fibrillation is... It's almost like a quivering. You know, if you have a muscle that is, your muscles contract, heart muscle does the same thing. But sometimes, you know, you can get a little quivering in a muscle and, and it it's not quite contracting. It's just sort of moving um, uh, in an uncoordinated fashion. That's what happens in atrial fibrillation. So you're not getting a coordinated uh, squeeze of those upper two chambers of the heart. The problem with that is that it can have blood that pools in different places in those upper two chambers, and then you can form a blood clot. Anytime blood stays still for any amount of time, you have the risk of a blood clot. That's why we get blood clots. Uh, some people get those on long drives or airplane rides or immobility. Um, so if that blood clot then forms, it goes downstream from the heart. And one of the first places, sort of the, the direct outlet from the, uh, from the heart, is up into the head, through the carotid arteries, into your brain, and then you could have a stroke. So that's the, the main risk factor with atrial fibrillation. There are a couple of others. So there's a couple of different ways that we treat that. Number one is look for anything that might be causing it. So tests like looking at your thyroid to make sure that it's not over-functioning or that you don't have an electrolyte problem because those heart cells that produce those electrical impulses depend on a constant level of electrolytes in our blood uh, to, f- to function properly. Uh, so that's the first thing that they look at to see if they can correct some of those things. And then what do you do about it? You can, uh, depending on how long it's gone, you can sort of shock the heart back into its regular rhythm. Um, that tends to be more successful if it's only been going on for a short period of time. You want to, uh, you can correct it with medication. So there's a common medication that's given called amiodarone. There are a couple of other uh, medications that uh, specialized cardiologists give to uh, treat that. Uh, and the if it's still there, you, you really need to uh, decrease the rate of the heart because typically the rate will go up to somewhere between 120 to 150 beats a minute with atrial fibrillation. And that's a little bit too fast for just sitting around not doing anything. So medications is one way, and, and really a cardiologist is the person to go to for that. To definitively, you know, what sort of causes this is is an abnormal collection of cells in the atria that is stimulating this electrical impulse, and they shouldn't be doing it. So what a specialized electrophysiologist, cardiologist can do, they've had extra training to do this, is they go in through a heart cath, they map out the electrical activity of the heart, and they, they specifically look for those cells that are causing the problem. And then they ablate those cells. So that uh, is either through high energy that sort of burns out those cells um, and can uh, potentially correct the problem. Um, You can have, it can work for a while. It can go back into an irregular rhythm. So mainly the biggest risk factors are risk of a clot while you're waiting for that to work. 
But really, there's not much that you have to do post-op after that. It is a very, uh, you know, it's it's about like having a, a cardiac catheterization. Most patients go home the same day, uh, or they may have to stay in the hospital uh, overnight, but it's usually not a prolonged hospitalization. And sometimes they'll continue some of those medications that they give to slow the heart rate down and to get the heart back into its regular rhythm. So uh, potentially a great way to uh, to correct that problem. So really common. Uh, if you get a good electrophysiologist doing the procedure, very successful. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today. I want to thank everybody for calling. It's always great to hear your questions and to share those with our listening audience. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.